This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. The Coin Bureau podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. You could do it just using the CPU, the, the central processing unit of your computer. So you could just do it on a laptop. But gradually, as more people began to hear of Bitcoin, as word got out, more miners joined the network. And so the difficulty began to increase. <laughs> And we're back to do episode two, part two of our blockchain special. Yes. My name is Guy. My name is Mad Mike Mooch. And this is the Coin Bureau podcast. So let's start off talking about nodes and miners, because these were both terms that came up quite a lot yesterday, and we didn't dive too deeply into what they do. So now's the time to do that. So first, let's draw some distinctions. So let's, let's talk about nodes, first of all. So... 
Nodes are, and as you correctly as you correctly said, Mikey, nodes are uh, computers participating on on the blockchain network. So nodes do three things. Okay, they store a record of all transactions made. Store. They validate transactions. Validate. And they enforce the rules of the network. They enforce that shit exactly. Exactly. SVE. <laughs> Um, so anyone can run a node. It isn't a particularly expensive process. You do need a little bit of hardware to do it. Um, you can do it with a, a Raspberry Pi. Have you heard of a Raspberry Pi? Uh, I thought, is that a f um, No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had such hope. You got me there. Yeah. You got me good. Okay, yeah, a Raspberry Pi is basically a very small and very basic computer. Mm. Um, and yeah, you can you can use a Raspberry Pi to run that's PI by the way, obviously. Uh, you can use a Raspberry Pi to run the Bitcoin software on and you just need to keep it running all the time and apparently uh, that uses in in electricity terms about as much as charging your phone. So, uh, a Raspberry Pi is not particularly expensive. I think you can get one for maybe $200, maybe less. Um, so, yeah, in order to in order to run a node, it's not uh, you don't need to expend you don't need to spend a lot of money on hardware and you don't need you don't have a lot of uh, running costs. So, that's really important because you want as much as many nodes on the network as possible. Um, and this is something we'll we'll talk about more in detail later on. So when a transaction is made, when someone sends BTC, the, the native coin of the Bitcoin network, to someone else, it's broadcast out to all the nodes on the network. Each node validates the transaction as it receives it, i.e. it checks that the sender actually has the BTC that they're trying to send. Because the nodes uh, are able to store all this information, it, they can easily check it. They can easily see. Mm. So if you were to try and, if you were to try and, uh, trying to send me 100 Bitcoin, so yep. then the nodes would be able to refer would, would be able to see pretty quickly that you didn't have a hundred bitcoin to send me mm, in I that know. wallet okay <laughs> <laughs> nodes are able to do this because they store a copy of the bitcoin blockchain and they can use it for reference so any fraudulent transactions are spotted and they're rejected by the network the nodes say no thanks no thanks yeah exactly so once a transaction has been validated, it's it goes into a state, it goes into a pending state, and it needs to be then confirmed and added to the blockchain. Now we talked about uh, last time we talked about transactions being batched together into blocks, and these blocks then being added to the chain. So it's time to really drill down into how this is done. So first of all, it's important to point out that this work, this is the kind of heavy lifting of the network, if you like, and this work is done by the miners. Um, and they also, so miners also do three things. They keep the blockchain secure. Okay. They confirm transactions. See. And, and they ensure that new bitcoins are distributed fairly. So mining, as we shall see, is, is a much more involved and expensive process. Running a node is cheap and easy. Being a miner, on the other hand, is anything but. And just before we go on, I should also say that miners are also nodes but not all nodes are miners. Okay, so okay. you can have a Raspberry Pi, which is a node, does some of the stuff, doesn't mine. You're not going to get rich off that. Exactly. Yeah. I or think you're not going to mine any coin from that. You might get some... Do you, do you get a little bit of node transactions, some cents? 
No, it's 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 an interesting point. Uh, the the idea of running a node actually, because really the only the only real incentive for it, I guess, is that you're contributing to the decentralization and the security of the network by doing so. Now, you could say that the incentive in that comes if you hold Bitcoin. If you hold BTC, then you do have an economic incentive to be a node because doing so makes the network safer and it will help keep your BTC. Be, it'll help it keep its value. So that's, I guess, the only real economic incentive to run a node is that you're happy to contribute to the security and the ongoing success of the network. So, but all all, all miners are also nodes. So the majority of yeah. nodes out there are probably safe to. Safe bet to say are, are miners. No, there are only uh, miners are uh, generally in the minority. Oh. Look at that! I just turned that pun around oh. seamlessly, didn't I? Yeah, there there are Don't not nearly as many. No- <laughs> <laughs> Break it down for me. <laughs> there are not nearly as many miners as there are nodes, and we'll find out why okay. in just a moment. Okay, so uh, periodically. Validated transactions, the transactions that have been validated by the nodes are batched together into a block. And here is where the miners get to work. So what the miners need to do is agree on the state of the network. In other words, they need to reach consensus. Now, we talked about consensus very briefly last time. We, we brushed over it a bit because this is where it starts to get quite complicated and technical. Um, But yeah, again, you can think of uh, consensus basically as being agreement. And in Bitcoin's case, consensus means a majority of miners, 51% or more, agreeing on the state of the network, agreeing that the ledger of transactions... 51% or more. 51% or more, yeah. yeah. Agreeing that the ledger of transactions is up to date and adding the new block to the chain. So how is this done? Now, before we before I drill down into this, I'm just going to give you a, a simple analogy that I've used before. I used this in a video that I did on YouTube um, where we talked about different ways of uh, achieving consensus. It was called proof of work versus proof of stake. Now, we've touched on proof of work very, very briefly. Proof of stake we'll talk about at the end. Um, but let's break this down a bit. So imagine a group of friends and they have a decision to make. Do they go for a meal or do they go to a cinema? Uh, Now, they have to find a way to reach a decision. In other words, consensus. So the simplest way to do this would probably just be to have a vote and the majority would win. Uh, So if more than half the group voted for the cinema, then that's where they'd go and vice versa for the restaurant. But let's imagine there's one member of the group who is absolutely determined to go to the restaurant. Maybe they haven't just eaten a you, yes. <laughs> Maybe they just haven't eaten an enormous taco like we have, yeah. and they're starving hungry. They want to go to the restaurant. They really don't want to go to the, uh, the cinema, but they can see that the group is leaning towards the cinema. Uh, they can see that they're probably going to be on the losing side of a majority vote. So they could perhaps try and swing the vote in their favour by recruiting some additional friends. Perhaps there's a group of uh, a group of their mates just around the corner. So they go and get some, bring some friends in and say, look, Vote for the restaurant and I'll, um, I'll, I'll pay for your drinks or something mm. like that, or I'll get your starter or whatever. So as the rules of the vote were for a simple majority, they would technically be right. Um, other people could object that these new people are being brought in, but it's still within the rules of that group, as in a majority has to vote for one thing or another, uh, they wouldn't technically be breaking the rules in that, in that sense. 
Now, you could argue that the vote should just be confined to the smaller original group. Um, and in that case, in the case of this group of friends, that would be that would be perfectly acceptable. But it does, however, limit the size of the group. And do you remember last time we talked about how important it was for a blockchain that there are as many nodes, there are as many mm. people on the network yeah. as possible? Uh, to contribute to the decentralization. You want as many participants as possible um, and because this makes it harder for one entity to assume any to sort of control. become that truth machine. Exactly, exactly. What you don't want, though, on a blockchain is additional participants joining the network uh, that are under someone else's control or influenced by them. So going back to that analogy of a group of friends, that's the last thing you want. You don't want these other people coming in because uh, they they are they are sort of being controlled or they're under the influence of this of this friend who's brought them in. And on a blockchain, that would be that would be exactly the opposite of what we want. So in order for these extra these extra participants on the network to, to get involved, they must they 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 must have some skin in the game. Is this all making sense so far? Yeah. Yeah, there has to. They have to contribute something, um, because otherwise it's just too easy. Sort of like to bring a gang them. initiation. Yeah, yeah, you could think of it like that. Hmm. Yeah, um, so they must expend some sort of effort in return. So the solution that Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, hit upon for Bitcoin to solve this problem, this idea of nodes uh, of participants on the network having to have some sort of skin in the game was a problem that already existed. And this is proof of work that we talked about briefly last time. OK, so proof of work. How does it work? This is now this is this is some really juicy technical stuff here. I'm mm. going to explain it as simply as I can. Cool. You've got your concentration face on. Yep. I'm going to just periodically check that you've still got your eyes open. Okay. So, uh, and just note all the following work that we're talking about is done by the miners. So, when uh, the data in each block is hashed, all this transaction data is hashed. And that is, it's run through what is called a secure hash algorithm, SHA. Is that encrypted, basically? Yeah, kind of like that, kind of like that. And the SHA, or the SHA, if you like, spits this data Sharks. out. Sharks. <laughs> <laughs> the SHA spits this data out as a long string of letters and numbers known as a hash value, or, or just a hash. Yeah. Still with me? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, Bitcoin's secure hash algorithm spits out a 256-bit number, which is represented by 64 characters. And as a result, Bitcoin's hash algorithm is known as SHA-256. Okay, uh, so there's, we're already getting quite technical. But yeah, SHA-256 is the algorithm, is the hashing algorithm that Bitcoin uses. Now, hashing data in this way is, is actually quite common. Um, sometimes it's used to encrypt data, as in make it unreadable to anyone who doesn't have the original input, if you like. Um, and it can also be used for storing data because large quantities of data can be compressed into a hash value of a fixed length. And this can then you can then search for that on a database via the actual hash value. OK, so here's the thing, though. Uh, secure hash algorithms, these shards are hypersensitive to changes in the input data. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example. Mikey, what is your what is your favorite book? Uh, Freakonomics. Freakonomics. Okay, so 
if we were to put, if we were to run the text of Freakonomics through uh, SHA-256, through the SHA-256 hashing algorithm, it would come out, it would compress that into a 64-character hash, a 64-character string of letters and numbers. But if we were to go back and change that text, if we were to make the smallest possible change to that text... One, like, full stop or yeah. period... Yeah, yeah, one period, one comma. Uh, t- just take a tiny, make a tiny little change out. Feed it back through the hashing algorithm again. The output, the hash that came out, would be completely different. So, yeah, it, the, the smallest change will result in a completely different hash value. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's um, so it can't be reverse engineered. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, the great thing about hash functions is that you can very easily verify the output if you have the correct input. So if I, if you were to say this is the this is the hash output of free, of the text of Freakonomics, uh, I could just run that text through and compare the hashes. And if they were if they matched up, then I'd know that the input data was was correct. And the weird thing is, it doesn't matter whether it's the entire text of Freakonomics, the entire text of the Bible, or just a text message, or just you know, a, a, few, a few numbers written down. Whatever it is, it will always be spat out by this hashing algorithm as a, as a hash. So, uh, does that make sense, hashing? Are you, kind of, are you yeah. clear on that? No, okay. much clearer. Good. Okay. Now, I know that we're still – that I've left that analogy of the group of people trying to reach consensus. I've kind of left that hanging a bit. But just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind that a group of people are trying to reach an agreement. Um, but in order for people to have a vote in that group, they need to have some sort of skin in the game. Hash, hashing – talking about hashing is the first part of that. But I will refer back to that analogy to sort of round it off. But before we do that, should we take a break? Sounds good. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. 
It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we've talked about how every transaction stored in a block is hashed. It's got, it goes through this hashing algorithm and it comes out with this hash value. Now, what happens then? is it's then added to the hash of another transaction and it's hashed again. The resulting hash is added to the hash of another transaction and hashed again. 
Triple hashed. Triple hashed. And this this hashing goes on and on and on. These hashes are constantly being added together and hashed again until there is only one hash left. Does that make sense? What is that one hash that's left? Okay, I'm glad you asked because that is called the root hash. And this whole process of hashing, adding and hashing again is arranged in a structure called a Merkle tree. Okay? So, just to... to, to to kind of paint a picture. Anything to do with Angela Merkel? Or? Nothing to do with Angela Merkel. It's actually, I knew you were going to ask that. I know you so well yeah. that I knew you would you would bring up Angela Merkel. It's the Angela obvious Merkel. fucking thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, is, it is natural. Now, it's actually named after an American computer scientist called Ralph Merkel. Oh, Ralphie. Ralphie, uh, who patented this, stru- this method of structuring large amounts of data in 1979, I okay. believe. Okay. So let me just kind of paint a visual picture for you. Imagine imagine a tree and all the leaves on the tree are transactions, individual transactions. Mm. Now these as I say, these are gradu- these are hashed to become twigs. Yeah, two become- hashed transactions are then added together and hashed again. So can you imagine these are sort of gradually they gra- as as more are hashed as more are added together and then rehashed, the number starts to go down. The, the number of hash values that you're left with starts to go down. And so you sort of go down from the leaves, things begin to thicken up a bit. It's a bit like, um, you know, when you have the table for like a tournament, for a sports tournament, yeah. and you have the first round. 16, 8, 4, Yeah, two, and it gradually one. sort of goes down until you've yeah. got two and then, and then one winner. This is basically a similar way to the way a Merkle tree is structured. Sort of like a river. All the tributaries and sort of little yeah, streams coming yeah, into one, flowing and it into finally e- comes into one. Yeah, flowing into each other. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a that's a nice little analogy. That. So yeah, what you end up with as they're gradually all hashed together, you end up with the root hash, and you can think of that as like the root of the tree, obviously, or the big or the big river or the final winner of the tournament, whichever whichever works for you. Uh, and this is the structure of a Merkle tree. What you get when you use this this way of structuring data is this root hash, and that acts as a summary of all the data in the block. Are you with me? Yeah. That's cool. That's good. Because, yeah, Merkle trees are... I remember when I first started reading about these years ago, and I just thought, wow, this is this is really... This is way above my pay grade. Mm. It's, it's, it's complicated stuff. Um, but it's important to, yeah, it's an important part of understanding how all this data, and because there is a lot of data, how it's all structured and, and stored in these blocks on the blockchain. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully that sort of opened up the, the idea of a Merkle tree a bit more. Now, if someone were to try go and go back and alter any of the data, say reverse a transaction that they've made to get their BTC back, the root hash would be completely altered. Because do you remember I said, even if you make the tiniest, tiniest adjustment to the input data, the output, the hash, the, the hash that you're left with is completely changed. Mm. So anyone trying to make even the smallest adjustment, adjustment to the information in the block, uh, that would change the root hash. Uh, and it would be, it would be obvious um, that something fishy was going something on. Something was awry. Something was amiss, exactly. So this is how all that transactional data is stored in a block on the blockchain. So we then come to the next step, and that is to link the block to the previous block on the chain. Now, things get even more complex from here, okay? 
Um, I'm about to throw, I'm going to throw some other terms here. You've dealt with Merkel trees wonderfully well. Is that patronising? Am I being patronising? I'm used to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but we'll talk about it afterwards. (laughs) Um, No, this is is not, uh, this is... It's fairly complex, so yeah. yeah. I've I've simplified it a lot um, yeah. because this is the sort of thing: the deeper you go, the more just completely mind-bending it gets. Um, it's quite good to have it explained to you rather than having to read it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And having an analogy, it kind of builds a picture a lot easier in my head. Good, yeah. Which is which is very much the point. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's it's something that I it's something that I sort of really struggle with when I get to when I get too deep into it. Um, this is you know this this is a, a field of sort of computer science or mathematics or however you want to look at it that is yeah it's pretty high level. So I've had to break it down so that I can understand it myself. And then you've had to put it into an analogy so that I can understand it. Exactly. Linking the blocks, linking one block to the previous block on the chain and keeping the network going. So this happens in the following way. Each block has something called a block header. Now you can think of the block header as kind of like the TLDR of the block itself. The too long didn't read. Mm -hmm. Um, The back of the book, the summary. Exactly, yeah, the blurb. The blurb on the back of the book. Now, there are six bits of info contained in a block header, and they are, you're going to like this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those six bits of info are, firstly, the version of the software that the Bitcoin client is running. Um, the, the Bitcoin software, yeah, the software is updated ever, uh, occasionally. Um, so it just, it just says which particular version it's running. Not too important. There's also a timestamp. Then we have the root hash of the transactions in the actual block. So that, yeah, there's a lot of information contained within that root hash, obviously. It also has the preceding blocks hash. Okay. Okay. And there are two other things. This is where it gets complicated. Mm -hmm. There's something called a target. That's another number. And there's also something called a nonce. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you'd like that. All this information that's contained in the block header, this blurb of the block itself, all of this is itself expressed as a long string of letters and numbers. Okay. Now, let's explain those last two terms, especially especially the last one. So, firstly, the target. Mm. You remember there was a number in there called the target. So, the target is merely an extremely long number. Okay. okay? But why is it called a target? Because, well, uh, that should hopefully become obvious. Okay. I'll just shut up and let you explain. That's all right. <laughs> So, yeah, the target is just an extremely long number. The nonce is just a random number. Okay. Now, the job of the miner is to hash the block header. Remember, the block header has expressed itself as a number. So, you hash that number and the nonce together. Okay. Still with okay. If And from that, you'll get an output. You'll get another hash as an Which, output. Is that supposed to equate to the target? Yeah. So, if the output is lower than the target, then they've essentially guessed correctly. Okay? okay. So you're basically trying to, you're basically, you've got this extremely, and bear in mind, these are so really... It's like a giant game of higher or lower. Yeah. Is it, is it higher? Is it lower? Again. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually a really good... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that analogy of higher or lower could stand up here. I mean, this is obviously very simplified as to what's going on. But when you when you bear in mind that we're talking about some seriously big numbers here, yeah. 
um, then it begins. You begin to realise that what the problem that they're trying to solve is actually really difficult. It's very, very difficult to arrive at this at this number that's that's lower than this huge target number. So. If the miner doesn't guess correctly, and they won't get it right first time because it's so difficult, they adjust the nonce slightly and they try again. So they do this. Um, they keep on doing this until they or another miner guess correctly. Okay. Now, what so this, this is where the computing power is going. Exactly. Exactly. Now, what a giant this, game of higher or lower. A giant game of higher or lower. Exactly. So this means submitting a lot of guesses. I mean, trillions of guesses here. Trillions upon trillions of guesses to try and. But like these computers number. are doing hundreds a second. I'm assuming. Absolutely. Oh Thousands. yeah. Oh, in, uh, I think they can do. I think. I think they can actually do. Tri- um, up to billions a second. I mean, it's, really? Yeah. Well, we're going to touch on the hardware. No, but one one minor. Yeah. Oh, really? They're using some pretty extraordinary hardware, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, But yeah, doing this requires a lot of computing power. It consumes a lot of energy, and this energy must obviously be paid for. Now, this is the work in proof of work. What these computers are doing in proof of work is essentially that they're carrying out what is really a very simple function. They're not doing... This is sometimes this process is sometimes explained it's trial and error essentially. Yeah, it, yeah, but it's a very simple function that the computer is carrying out. It's guessing. It's not, for instance, solving a particularly complicated equation or anything like that. And sometimes when people talk about Bitcoin mining, uh, it's sometimes expressed what the miners are having to do. They're sometimes said to be solving uh, mathematical puzzles or solving equations or anything like that. And that's not strictly true. What they're really doing is kind of real grunt work, real computing heavy lifting. They're not doing anything complicated. It's just very, very laborious. Laborious, yeah. Yeah. Um, so miners are expending this electricity in order to participate on the network. And once the work has been successfully completed, the block is added to the chain by the miner who submitted the correct guess and the network begins working on the next block of transactions. Okay? All making sense? Yeah. So let's refer this back to that group of friends analogy that we were talking about earlier. So this idea of you want people you want more people to participate on the network but they have to have some skin in the game got to be involved yeah and this proof of work is exactly what that skin in the game is so in order to join the network in order to have a vote on consensus they are having to expend this computing power um so let's you, using the group of friends analogy, let's say that in order to let's simplify it hugely and say that in order to have a vote, you had to you had to solve a crossword puzzle, say, which means that anyone who was wanting to wanting to participate, they'd have to they'd have to kind of put something down. They'd have to expend time. They'd have to expend effort, um, and this would this would turn people off who who weren't you know who weren't all that bothered or who weren't willing to do it or or if you know if you were trying to bring other people on that you controlled it wouldn't be as easy as just bringing them in and getting them to vote they have to expend mm. power and what this translates to what translates to on a blockchain in real life is basically they have to expend this work and they have to pay for that computing power so yeah they they have they have skin in the game it has to be they they have to they have to prove that they've done work proof of work make sense yeah 
Good. Okay, now <clears throat> just to uh, just to give another analogy, I like that 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 higher or lower analogy was was great. The the best sort of simple analogy I've seen for this is to imagine the miners as gamblers at a at a dice table. Mm-hmm. Now imagine that each of them has a one thousand sided die, and they have to roll it until one of them gets a number lower than let's say for in, for the sake of argument lower than five. So just, yeah, just have a think about that. Like you're throwing these dice, one with a thousand different sides on, and you're trying to load this, you're trying to roll this very low number. Do you see how that would be be quite difficult to do? Um, But the one that eventually rolls that number below five, they they are the winner. And the network, and you can think of the network itself as the miners sort of around the table. It's very easy to look down and see that that five has been rolled. So you could, that's the way that they can sort of validate it, that they can, they can approve it, if you like. They look down, they see that a five has been rolled. Okay, we're all agreed. Next block. And they start rolling again. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So this, and as I said, the one that rolls that number below five in this analogy, that very, very low number that they're all striving for, they win. Now, what does winning mean? And this brings us on to the question of block rewards. Again, last time we talked about this kind of carrot and stick uh, that um, participants on a blockchain had in order to take in order to take part. Obviously, they have to expend this work, but why would they? Why would they expend this work? They have to have. They have to have. Um, uh, they have to have something to, to aim for. They have to have a reward. Yeah. What's the skin in the game? Yeah, it has to be worth their while, and this is where block rewards come in. Okay, Mike quite a lot of information there should we take a quick break do we have to you want to carry on i would but i know we have some sponsors all right let's hear from them okay become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from trinity school of natural health trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT AT&T who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time 
with the customers, that is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Welcome back, everyone. Let's carry on. Now, we talked about how uh, miners get a cut of transaction fees. Every Bitcoin transaction that takes place, every transaction that takes place on the Bitcoin network, a small fee is levied, a very, very small fee. And that goes to the miners. That's one way of them generating revenue. But the other one 
is the big one, and that is block rewards. Now, because the miners are using all this electricity to do all this hashing and guessing of these random numbers, there must be something in it for them. The main incentive being this block reward. Now, in Bitcoin's case, a number of BTC, uh, an amount of BTC is awarded to the miner who makes the correct guess. This is called the block reward. It's currently uh, around six and a quarter BTC. But wow. it used to be a lot higher. Now, obviously, at today's prices, B, um, Bitcoin is, is hovering around the, the $50,000 mark at the moment. So six and a quarter BTC is, is a lot of money. Mm. Um, now, this reward used to be higher. What happens is every four years or so, roughly every four years, the block reward is programmed to half, to cut in half. So previously, it was um, 13 BTC for that that was the block reward for mining a block for guessing this for guessing this number correctly uh, but obviously back then 13 BTC was worth a lot less yeah. uh, this is called the halving this is called the bitcoin halving you may have heard this referred to um, and this decreases bitcoin's inflation rate because fewer BTC are created with each block um, because this happens, obviously, for every single block. So every single block that's mined, which takes place roughly every 10 minutes, uh, sees another six and a quarter BTC created and awarded to the miner who guessed the, guessed the random number and mined the block. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So c it, could someone just get really lucky and mine 100 blocks a day? Very unlikely. Very unlikely. And we'll see why. Because, yeah, it's um, in, in Bitcoin's early days, it, would, it was possible to mine a lot more. But because there are so many computers on the network, because there are so many miners now competing to do this, because there is, because there is a lot at stake, um, it's very, very difficult. And more and more computing power has been thrown at the network, uh, which means that you, in order to even stand a chance of of winning this lottery if you like you need to be compu uh, um, contributing a lot of computing power yourself you can think of it as like a lottery when you enter a lottery if you buy one ticket you have a very 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 small chance of winning the jackpot mm. but if you buy more tickets your chances go up now obviously it's not ever guaranteed um well it would be guaranteed i guess if you were able to buy all the tickets but then it wouldn't be worth your while yeah. but yeah Think of, a lottery is a good way to think about it, um, and computing power basically equaling lottery tickets, increasing your chances of winning each time. So although Bitcoin mining is very expensive because you need specialized equipment and you need the electric, you need to pay for the electricity to run it and also keep it cool, um, but it can still be profitable because of this block reward. And remember, as I said, a new block is produced roughly every 10 minutes. So there are constantly always, always Bitcoin, always BTC to play for. Is that why sometimes when you make a transaction, it can take a little time for it to show up? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The um, yeah, the network, the Bitcoin network is quite slow. This is something we'll, we'll touch on shortly. Um, so remind me to come back to that. But I want to talk now uh, about increasing the difficulty. Now, we've, ju we've just begun to touch on this idea of you need all this computing power in order to mine Bitcoin. So why not just why not just buy more lottery tickets? So you might imagine that if mining is so profitable, what stops more and more miners from joining the network and committing so much hash power? This is what it's generally referred to, uh, this, this, um, this computing power 
being committed. We call it hash power. Um, what what stops them from from committing all this hash power and then the blo the block's getting solved much much quicker because remember as I said a new block is created pretty much every ten minutes mm. and that that stays that stays consistent. Now this is a really difficult thing to achieve because Satoshi Nakamoto he anticipated this and he put a safeguard in place because what you don't want is blocks just being produced far too quickly. Um, you want you want them to space out so the network sort of works constantly, and and it also s means that it's not possible for one miner just to commit so much hash power that they that they win the majority of blocks. It helps keep it decentralized, but of course if if more miners join the network, then the average time. So sorry, I should say the average time for the miners on the network to solve a block is ten minutes, with all the computing power that's currently on the network. That's the average time. Now, if more miners join, this average goes down, right? Yeah. So what Satoshi programmed the network to do was to increase the difficulty of solving a block if more hashing power was added. Still with me? Yeah. So you can think, let's go back to that example of gamblers uh, rolling those 1,000-sided dice. Now let's imagine, so they're chasing this very, very low number. They've all got this 1,000-sided dice. They're all trying to roll a five or lower in order to get, you know, that's the target. Um, so what happens if more gamblers turn up with more 1,000-sided dice? Obviously, the chances would would increase that that, that, that five is... going to roll it. Yeah. So they increase the number of sides in the dice. No. What happens is the number itself gets lower. Oh. So let's say they're trying to roll five or below. So the target gets lower, not the nonce. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, the target, yeah, the, the target gets, yeah, the target gets lower. I think I'll have to double check that. Okay, so imagine you, yeah, imagine you have these new, uh, these new gamblers, these new dice rollers coming to the table. Yep. So what happens in order to keep that average time uh, at 10 minutes, the number, it's, uh, the number that they have to low, roll, roll lower than is decreased. So let's say they were trying to roll lower than a five. As more join, they'd have to roll lower than a four, say. So that average goes back, that average is kept the same. Uh, and this is, this is called increasing the difficulty. Uh, it increases the average time that it takes for that number to be rolled. And the Bitcoin blockchain is designed to increase the difficulty if more miners and therefore more hash power join the network. And crucially as well, it's also programmed to decrease the difficulty if miners leave the network. So do you remember um, we were talking in the last episode, I think, about Bitcoin mining being very concentrated in China? Yeah. Then in mid-2021, China just banned it. Went, no, no. Yeah, no more Bitcoin mining. We don't like this. So what that forced miners in China to do was basically to pack up their equipment. Now, some of them just, just shut up shop and you know went out of business. But most of them packed up their equipment, which took a heck of a long time, and shipped it somewhere else. Now, as I said, uh, they went to places like they went all over. They, uh, a lot of them went to the USA, but also a lot of them went to countries in Central Asia where um, where there was sort of cheap power to be had. Because one of the benefits of mining in China was that there was a lot of cheap power. Mm. Unfortunately, a lot of that power was generated by burning coal. Uh, so, yeah, so they went elsewhere, these miners. So that meant that uh, the network lost a lot of hash power. Um, because the mine obviously takes time to shut down a mining operation, pack it all together. They become a little easier. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So the Bitcoin network decreased the difficulty. 
And that meant that the average block time was still was kept around 10 minutes. So this takes us this idea of the difficulty decreasing. This takes us back to Bitcoin's early days, because we're going to talk now about how mining is done. We're going to get, dig, a, uh, dig a bit more into into what actually is taking place in Bitcoin's early days. It was really, really easy to mine. Uh, and this is because there were hardly any miners on the network. And so the difficulty was really low. Uh, so imagine we go, let's go back to our dice example again. Um, let's say that the number that they were having to roll lower than was something like 300. Yeah. So yeah, there were fewer miners doing it, but they had, a, they had an easier target basically. And it was so easy to do that you could mine Bitcoin on a regular laptop. This is really, I, yeah, yeah I, I always find this crazy. I mean, it's so easy with hindsight now, but you look back at, um, you look back at Bitcoin's early days and yeah, I mean, the first person ever mining Bitcoin was Satoshi. Uh, and the block reward, I believe, was about 50 BTC, which obviously today would be millions of dollars. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, it was, it could be, you could do it just using the CPU, the, the central processing unit of your computer. So you could just do it on a laptop. But gradually, as more people began to hear of Bitcoin, as word got out, more miners joined the network. And so the difficulty began to increase in order to keep that block time nicely averaged out. Um, and then this is one of the, this is one of my favorite parts of the whole Bitcoin story is there's a, there was a computer programmer down in Florida. Um, and he had this he hit on a bright idea. He was he got into Bitcoin. He was mining it on his computer. And I think so. The story goes he was he was noticing that he that he, when he first started, he was winning quite a few. He, he was winning quite a few, he was getting to mine quite a few blocks and, and getting quite a few block rewards. And then he gradually noticed that he was winning fewer and fewer. And then it slowed to a trickle. And he realized that there were so many miners on the network now that the competition was was much, much stiffer. So he had a bright idea. He realized that because because what he his computer was trying to do was, as I've said, very sort of grunt work, very, very straightforward computing. It just required a lot of effort. Um, he realized that he could mine it using his computer's GPU, his graphics processing unit. And this is a huge moment in the history of Bitcoin, really, because um, it's not particularly complex to do. Your GPU can be quite easily configured, so people who know these sorts of things tell me. And that's exactly what, what this guy did. Um, and it turns out that GPUs, because of the nature of the work they do, they're ideally suited to doing this. So what he did was configure his GPU to mine Bitcoin, and suddenly he found that he was back winning loads. And the, the really lovely twist in this whole story is um, that this is the guy who later became famous for spending 10,000 BTC on a couple of pizzas. Have you heard about this Bitcoin no, pizza guy? Yeah, His yeah. name is Laszlo Hanyeks. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and yeah, so the story goes, he... Uh, he was he, he was hungry. He wanted to buy... He had all these Bitcoin because he'd... Um, because he'd suddenly figured out how to how to mine way more bitcoin he had tons of them um and they were worth they were worth virtually nothing at this point um but he yeah he put out a call he put out a a call i think it was on the bitcoin bitcoin talk forum or, or some sort of forum for bitcoin users um saying does anyone can anyone get me some pizzas and i'll give them 10000 btc and some guy I, I think apparently he was here in the uk said yeah i'll uh, i'll take you on on that so um this guy called up a local pizzeria in Florida near to where Laszlo lived, 
got paid for paid for them to send him two pizzas and laszlo sent this guy 10000 btc and that was the first uh, recorded instance of bitcoin being used to pay for anything um and of course yeah if you do the maths on it now 10000 10000 btc is billions of dollars no not quite billions i think but hundreds of millions of dollars um what was the pizza i th we th what <laughs> how much <laughs> how many toppings <laughs> Did he get on that pizza? I don't think it was anything. I don't think he had a gold-topped pizza yeah. or a truffle. <laughs> can you put on it? <laughs> Just can, can you put half a ton of gold on it, please? Yeah. Um, saffron. I want the pizza to be made entirely of saffron. I want the base to be solid saffron. Okay, so, yeah, so this guy figured out uh, a, a way to, a more efficient way, if you like, of mining Bitcoin. And this kind of started... Um, basically a mining arms race because this became very apparent suddenly everyone was like oh wait hang on a sec this guy's found this guy's got a secret weapon so after that as you can imagine everyone all any miner who who was serious about what they were doing uh, began to configure their gpus um, began to buy more powerful computers um, and this just only got more and more intense as the price of bitcoin began to rise because the stakes got massively higher uh, and eventually, people started using specialized computers known as ASICs. Mm. ASICs stands for um, Application Specific Integrated Circuit. I remembered. Well done. Um, thank you. And this is basically hardware that is built to perform one task. An ASIC is designed just to do one thing. And Roll that dice. Roll that dice, exactly. Um, I've seen them. They're kind of, they look like tiny motors. And they're just yeah, they in, do. In just giant racks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this is this is where we've got to now. And this is what's this is what's so crazy about the whole thing, really, um, because it didn't take long for people began to configure these ASICs and build basically specialized Bitcoin mining machines, specialized ASICs, if you like. Um, and yeah, that brings us to where we are today. And yeah, exactly right. You see that they're just rack upon rack upon rack of these things, all just whirring away. And all they're doing is guessing. They're doing it's real brute force computing, if you like. Um, and this obviously to, to power these things. I mean, I think to run an to run one ASIC would be I think you'd, you'd end up with a pretty hefty electricity bill at the end of the month. So you can imagine what running racks of these things. And I mean, people have thousands, thousands mm. upon thousands of ASICs just running and running and running Constantly. all the time. Yeah. Um, but obviously the Bitcoin block rewards are such that Bitcoin is so valuable now that the block rewards make it worth it. Um, but this is why, obviously, people generally tend to go where power is cheaper and mm. ideally uh, through renewable energy because renewable energy tends to be cheaper and obviously it doesn't have... You could use the them to heat your house. Yeah, well, this is, a, this is something, this is, another, this is another part of it because... Um, they do emit an awful lot of heat and you have to cool them down. Mm. Um, so a lot of miners have gone to places like Canada um, or Iceland. Iceland is a particular popular, particularly popular place uh, for mining cryptocurrency. Does it have like that, that sort of volcanic power? Yeah, I think you can, you can not only power it quite cheaply through, yeah, geothermal, I think. Mm. Um, but it's also bloody cold. So if you've got a warehouse full of these things, you just, I don't know. I guess Open just, the doors a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Let the breeze sort it. Gonna crack the window, will you? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you just think if you have these you know, at the bottom of your house in Iceland, 
yeah. just whack up the the old uh, Bitcoin <laughs> thermostat. <laughs> I have heard, yeah, because this this mining, uh, this whole business of mining is obviously something that's um, that's been kind of front and center in in Bitcoin recently because of concerns over ESG, uh, environmental, social, and governance. Um, and this is what stops a lot of people, a lot of institutions, especially investing in Bitcoin, is its perceived environmental impact. Um, and I have heard, yeah, I have heard talk about converting this heat that the that these ASICs produce, converting that heat into, yeah, heat for people's homes, mm. um, or, you know, some other, I mean, you can use heat for all sorts of things, can't you? To create more electricity. Yeah. Yeah. Just, so there's, I think there are all sorts of pretty clever solutions. I mean, what's the energy? So the energy that goes in electricity, what comes out is computing power, uh, heat and noise, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of noise, I think. Are they you quite noisy? Whirring around. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the environmental impact of, of Bitcoin mining is something that's been troubling a lot of people. Um, and, you know, fair enough, really. I mean, it does use a lot of electricity and I mean estimates vary but it's kind of people people regularly say or regularly compare it to the energy usage of a pretty large country I think Argentina has been but sort of held up as a as if you think about all of the electricity and waste in sort of a third party ledger mm -hmm. like so all the electricity that Visa MasterCard Amex all, 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 all these banks are using is it not comparable I don't think so. I mean, it's it's certainly fair to say that, yeah, uh, the likes of Visa will use a lot of electricity. Um, but the problem is, I think, that because so many miners on the Bitcoin network are competing to do this and only one can win, a lot of that energy, you can say, is just being expended really for nothing. Mm. Um but yeah, we shouldn't we we shouldn't kid ourselves that that other systems we use, and you you've got to be careful about sort of straying into kind of whataboutism here. Mm. But yeah, I mean anything we do, whether it's watching YouTube or listening to a podcast or, or using Visa or a banking network or anything like that, it does use electricity. It does use power, um, and we need power for our society to function. Um, but yet, yeah, for me, this is just another kind of uh, another argument for saying that we have the we have the ability to produce uh, clean and constant energy it's it's about having the will to do it i think humanity is more than capable of producing as much electricity as it could ever need more than it would ever need and it's capable of doing so without burning fossil fuels but it's it's finding the will to do that um but yes yeah, certainly bitcoin's environmental impact the the, the sheer Electri the sheer amount of electricity used to mine Bitcoin has been has been a problem for a while. And this is it's one of the things that Elon Musk cited when he because you remember he said, oh, Tesla is now going to accept BTC as payment mm. for its cars. And then he did an about turn not long after. Uh, and that was uh, supposedly over concerns about Bitcoin's environmental impact. And he has said um, that when Bitcoin mining, uh, when the amount of renewable energy used for Bitcoin mining goes above 50 percent for the entire network, then Tesla will start reaccepting BTC. Um, and there are plenty of people who argue that it's now much higher than that. Some people will tell you it's it's over fifty percent. Some people will say it's about seventy percent. Um, but Elon hasn't gone hasn't gone back well, to that yet. Think, at the I don't time think of there were that many sales with it either. I heard. I think there were four sales or twelve sales. Really? Yeah. With with. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's not a big number. But. Yeah. I mean, I suppose because the price of Bitcoin was climbing so much at the time, people were kind of 
you know, people were hodling, mm. people were keeping hold of it. Um, and there's one other thing to say about the environmental impact of Bitcoin, um, and that's that these ASICs, these specialized mining rigs, obviously the problem is when you're in an arms race, someone is always working to fight to get an advantage. Mm. So periodically some company or other will come up with a more efficient Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin mining machine, a better ASIC. Uh, and all the obsolete ones are just canned. They're just chucked on the chucked on the on in the in, on the trash, which obviously makes for a lot of e-waste, mm. which is not good. Um, so yeah, it is this it, it is this amazingly um, amazingly energy intensive process. Um, and some would say some would say it was wasteful, but all this work is being done in order to keep the network secure, in order that someone can't just join the network with all their buddies, and 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 have undue influence over it. Um, and many argue that proof of work is the only really fail-safe way of keeping a, a blockchain like that secure, because the barriers to entry, the 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 cost of trying to of trying to corrupt the network is so high that no one no one could be incentivized to do it whether they're doing it for supposed financial gain or whether they're doing it just because as I think as I think you said they just want to watch the world burn see the world burn yeah yeah so so yeah so that's what's that's what's going on that's what's going on with bitcoin mining that's why it uses so much electricity that's why so many people have had a problem with it so we have a really large and scattered group of computers making up this network truly decentralized. There's no central authority. No one is in charge. Some of these computers, the nodes, are merely running the software, storing a record of what happens on the network. They don't receive any reward for this. They just know that they're contributing to the security of the network. Glad to be part of the team. Exactly. Exactly. Happy to be, happy to be aboard. Um, but then we have the miners doing the heavy lifting. They're batching transactions, they're confirming them, and they're ensuring that blocks are added to the chain and the network is constantly being updated. And in order to do this, in order to participate in that process, they are using proof of work because it stops them from being able to join the network for free and maybe manipulate it to their advantage or for destructive purposes or whatever. They get rewarded for their work by essentially being entered into a lottery for new bitcoins for new BTC. And the more hash power they add to the network, the more lottery tickets they get. Or going back to that dice analogy, the more dice they get to roll. And here's the really clever thing about all this. And what it's what helps keep the Bitcoin network so secure. Because these miners receive Bitcoin rewards for their work, they have an economic incentive in staying honest. Um, if they were to go to all the effort of trying to take over the network and manipulate it to their own ends, whatever those ends would be, it would quickly become obvious. People would lose confidence in it and the value of the Bitcoin that these miners hold would drop. So there's, yeah, there's, a, there's a, an economic incentive both to participate and to stay honest. Guy. Yes, Mike. I love you. I love you too. But can we end this episode? <laughs> <laughs> what? You... I think, listen, we just need little chunks. Little chunks. Little chunks. When it comes to, to stuff like this, uh, and I think my brain is at capacity, I'm going to need another week uh, just to let all this sink in, and then we're going to tackle part three of blockchain. I did see what looked like steam coming out of your ears at one point. My nose is bleeding. <laughs> Fair enough, Mikey. Because because I love you so much. Uh, yeah, let's call it let's call it a day there, and we'll pick this up next time. Sounds good. All right. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Coin Bureau Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in LA. And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.